Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Numbers. It is the third of the books of Moses, the third book in the Old Testament. And you will recognize these words as often said at the end of the worship service. These words are the words of blessing that Aaron was instructed to pronounce over the people of God. Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 to 27. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel, you shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. We have heard God's word read. Now let's ask God's blessing upon this reading of his word to our hearing. Will you pray with me? O Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your law. By your spirit, quicken our hearts so that we we might believe these words and help us not merely to be hearers, but doers as well. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please have a seat. C.S. Lewis. Most of you have probably heard of him as the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, right, children? Chronicles of Narnia. But the favorite novel, uh, C.S. Lewis's own favorite novel, is the book entitled uh, Till We Have Faces. And it's the story of Queen Orwal, Queen of Gloam. It's a retelling of one of the ancient Greek myths, but set in C.S. Lewis's own context. But the thing that it's a somewhat complex story, it's very rich, but, but to sum it up, Orwell, when she was young, was told by her father she was ugly and told to put on a veil. But over time, she learned that as she wore this veil, she became more and more mysterious so that she became more powerful in her mystery. Here's what she said. As years passed and there were fewer in the city who remembered my face, the wildest stories got about as to what that veil hid. Some said that it was frightful beyond endurance. A pig's, a bear's, cat's, or elephant face. The best story was that I had no face at all. If you stripped off my veil, you'd find emptiness. But another sort said that I wore a veil because I was of a beauty so dazzling that if I let it be seen, all the men in the world would run mad. Or else that Ungut, and this was the god of Gloam, that Ungus was jealous of my beauty and had promised to blast me if I went bareface. The upshot of all this nonsense was that I became something very mysterious and awful. As I said, it's a very complex, interwoven story, but... For our purposes, we can say that the veil which she first wore to cover her face, her father called her curd face, the veil which she first covered the shame of her looks later became a source of queenly authority and mystique, but as she tragically learned, it diminished her humanity. Only in the removal of her veil at the very end of the story did she become fully human again? Now, this 
message has nothing to do with PPE masks. So just check that off. But what is relevant is how visceral the whole subject of masks has become for us. And I think below the surface there's something related to this story of C.S. Lewis, that there's something about the face that is at the heart of our humanity. And this text that we've read, I think, indicates that because there is something about the presence and the blessedness and the peace of God which is described in terms of God showing His face to His people. So here's what I would like us to see as we look at this very familiar part of the Bible, the the ironic benediction which you've heard uh, ministers over your years pronounce at the end of service, some of whom have pronounced it many, 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 many times. Here's what I want us to notice. That we, like Orwell, we make masks and veils. Masks to cover what is there, to, to mask to, to make what is not there, rather, and veils to cover what is there. But when we do that, we become like Orwell, we become less human. Yet, in the highest pronouncement of blessing, not only in the Old Testament, I believe in the whole of the Bible, here in Numbers chapter 6, we see this, that God unmasks himself. He shows his face to shine his favor upon his people. In a word, here's what we will see when we look at this text more closely. God made us with faces to shine his face on ours. And because God has made us with faces to shine his face on ours, we must look differently. And by that I don't mean look different but we must look at things differently because of the God's gaze. <clears throat> so let's first look at God's look on us. And then we'll talk about what it means to look differently. I want us to first notice as we look at these words, uh, the context of God's gaze. This comes in the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers begins with a military census and ends with a military census, the first generation to the second generation, as they marched across the wilderness to the promised land. And in the, in the chapter, uh, two, two chapters immediately preceding this verse, these verses, God's people have consecrated themselves. God's in the midst of them. And it's not good news when God draws close unless God's people are prepared to be in His presence. And so they've consecrated themselves. They dedicated themselves to the Lord. They have gone through what the law required in order to be present themselves as holy to the Lord. And therefore, this blessing of God comes at the end of that section. That's the context of God's grace. Well, what is the connotation of God's grace? What does it mean of God's gaze, rather? What is the connotation of God's gaze? Well, it's, it's a metaphor. We know from the scriptures that God doesn't have a body as we do. That's the children's catechism. Uh, there's a little song that goes with it. God is a spirit. Just think of the wind. He doesn't have a body like men. And yet the Bible also speaks of God having a face. When Moses prayed at Mount Sinai after the golden calf episode, According to God's invitation, ask of me what you will, Moses said, show me your glory. And God's response was, no one shall see my face and live. 
throughout the Psalms, and this would be a little interesting study for those of you who like to go home and read your Bible on a Sunday afternoon, <clears throat> the face of God in Psalm 4 is a source of joy. In Psalm 80, God's face toward a person is salvation. In Psalm 31, it's a vindication from shame. In Psalm 44, it is the source of victory to have God's face shining on one. When the psalmist is under trials and under duress and wondering where God is at, he describes this experience as God's face being hidden from him. When the psalmist is vindicated, Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Later on he says, that the showing of God's face toward him is vindication. Confidence in God's faithfulness is described as seeing God's face. And in Psalm 51, that famous penitential psalm that David himself prayed, he described the knowledge of sin in himself, and he pleads for God to turn his face away from him in his sinful state. So, To be looked upon God's face, to have God's face shine upon us, is the most wonderful of blessings. It is salvation before the opposition and and attacks of this world, and is the highest state of human existence, to be looked upon in favor by God. That's the connotation of what it means to see the face of God turn toward us. Now, some of you might say, well, it's just a metaphor Never say just a metaphor. <laughs> For one thing, this is a biblical metaphor. But, you know, Romans 1 tells us God made the whole world in such a way so that he could turn around and point to those things and say, this is what I'm like. In Revelation chapter 1, the glorious, victorious Christ is described as having a face like the sun. God made the sun, Psalm 104 tells us, says, God made the sun which travels across the sky during the day so we, know, we would know something about God. God made mountains so that we would know something about God as a rock. And so never say just a metaphor when it comes to biblical metaphors about God. To be looked upon by the face of God is precisely how we might imagine it be looked upon by somebody whose approval, whose favor we seek in this life, to be smiled upon. What's involved in that? What's the content? What does it deliver then when God looks upon his people? Well, there are three lines in this benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you, his countenance meaning his face, and give you peace. There are three lines, each of three, five, and seven words. Each of those three lines has 15, 20, and 25 consonants. The divine name occurs in the introduction. The Lord spoke to Moses. The divine name occurs in the benediction itself, in all three lines. And the divine name is even mentioned in the conclusion, which says, so shall they put my name upon them. Now, we don't have to get too deep into the Bible code here. I mean, the, the, the Old Testament writers did intentionally use structures to communicate significance and importance, but with this 3, 5, 7, 15, 20, and 25, and threefold repetition of the divine name, what can we conclude from this? This is really important. You can 
Quote me on that. But notice within the blessing itself, each line's first term is applied by the second term. The Lord bless you and keep you. If the Lord blesses you, He will keep or guard you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Well, to have the face of God shining upon us is to be recipients of His grace. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you. The Lord look up to you and give you peace. That means the countenance of God brings us peace. And this is that Hebrew word shalom by which Semitic peoples uh, of, of both Hebrew and Arabic derivation, derivation greet one another. Shalom, salim. It's, it's, it's the highest happiness. It's the most flourishing situation in which human beings can exist. It is the blissfulness of the created order when it is according to God's way. The greatest happiness a human being can have is to have God's face shine on them, it says to us. So that each first half of the blessing causes or brings about the second half. And it's not a a face of stone or wood. Psalm 115 talks about the nation's gods who have eyes that can't see and ears that can't hear, noses that can't smell and mouths that can't speak and eyes that can't see. And those who worship them become like them. Those are the gods of the nations. But the living God, the God of Israel, is one whose gaze is life-giving. It brings shalom. It, It is life to be looked upon in favor by God. That's the content of the gaze. The consequence? Well, we know from other passages in Scripture, when God entered the garden, Adam hid, didn't he? When Jacob wrestled with God in the darkness, he demanded a name. And he said later, I have seen the face of God and I've seen the face of God, but by God's mercy, it was in the darkness. And Jacob went away with the grace of a limp from that encounter. This is a wholly different experience. This is not Isaiah falling down and being undone. This is not... uh, Those who see the face of God and are terrified, this is the consequence of God, of seeing God's face here. The consequence of God's gaze is this life. And we know in Revelation 3.12, where this theme is picked up, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, which is precisely how the ironic benediction ends. We will bear the name of God like the priests of Israel who walked around with the name of God on their garments. We, as a royal priesthood and a holy nation, bear the name of God. We walk about in this world baptized in the name of Christ so that as we walk about in this world, we bear the name of God in Christ. That part of a person's body that more than anything else describes or, 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 or by which a person is known. 
that part of a person's body we turn away from if we don't want to be seen is the part of the body that God uses to describe the consummate, ultimate favor that he shows toward his people. I heard an interview recently with uh, portraitist Catherine Prescott. And she was being interviewed about uh, her portrait work and also in this curious age of masks and what they mean or don't mean. And in that interview, she said, the mouth is more important than the eyes for expression because the mouth is the soft tissue of the face. And while the eyes have six or seven emotions, this is a professional portrait artist, right? The eyes have maybe six or seven emotions. Without the mouth to reinforce them, you don't know which six or seven they're saying. We, we all know people who smile with the mouth but not with the eyes. The mouth is more variable and expressive than the eyes. It's, it's where the eyes look, but it's the mouth. It's, it's the eyes where we look, but it's the mouth which shows whether somebody is revealing themselves or hiding themselves. The more sincere the smile, the more it affects the entire face, she said. So when we think about God shining his face on us and the highest state of happiness is to be looked upon by the face of God, we see in his face being turned toward us the highest prospects of happiness in this life and in the life to come. And this has three basic implications which I'd like to to lay out for us. First of all is to long for the look. To long for the look. The ironic benediction is not only God pronouncing blessing on his people, but it's a signal to come and to seek that blessing. I don't know if you had this experience when I was in high school sports. My dad worked odd hours as a railroader. And it was always a wonder to me on a Friday night football game, would he be able to make the game and and, 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 and sometimes it wasn't clear beforehand. And, and I remember looking to the sidelines and, 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 and what it was like to, to see him, that he had made the game. And we all look into the crowd, whether it's our ballet recitals or our soccer games, to see the faces of those whose blessing, whose approval we desire. Well, the prospect of God shining His face on us should cause us to long for the look of God. What is your highest desire? What is your highest aim in your life? What is your most dear possession? What is the thing you long for the most in life? What makes you the happiest? What is, what, what, when, you, when you lack it, makes you the saddest? Look, here is the most wonderful thing a human being can possess, which is God shining His face on us. Psalm 27 is a hymn to this notion. The Lord is at my light and my salvation, said David. Whom shall I fear? In verse 4 of Psalm 27, he says this, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. I want more than anything else to be in the presence of God. And so he prays in verses 7 and 8, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. This is God's invitation. God says to each and every one of us, seek my face. And is the answer of our heart to say, your face, Lord, do I seek. Is it for you, the face of God, is it the pearl of great price for which everything else can be sold in order to acquire it? As we see it laid out here, as we see it described, as we see the results of it, it easily is to the rational mind enlivened by the Spirit of God. The most precious thing in the world is to be looked upon by God. And we must therefore long for His look. The second thing, I think, is a consequence of this ironic benediction, is for us to look at ourselves. The first consequence is long for the look. The second one is to look at ourselves. Because being looked upon by God means looking at ourselves differently. The mask does not obscure God's gaze of what's really there. And yet He looks upon us in His grace nevertheless. Ultimately and necessarily in and through Jesus Christ, in whose face we behold the glory of God. God's grace causes us to look differently at ourselves. 1 Corinthians 13 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We shall one day see the face of God in fullness as we have never seen it before. But now in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says this. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. And we all now with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. When we look at ourselves the way that God looks at us, we look at ourselves dramatically differently. Not masking what is there to add something that's not, not covering up, but rather openly and freely. As Jude 24, 25 tells us that we stand in the presence of God, blameless with great joy through Jesus Christ. When I was... Um, First ordained, I was a assistant pastor at a small church, and uh, we were very happy to see families with children come. And this one family came, and their last name was Cave. And uh, there were two young boys, probably between five and ten at the time. They were known as the Cave Boys, and that name was well deserved. They were uh, very active, as my generous school teacher wife would describe them. And they seem impervious, impenetrable to human voices, especially ones that would tell them to stop doing one thing or start doing something else or just to listen. But one of our elders' wives was a master school teacher. She had been at it for probably 30 years by that time. And she, she this is what children don't always know, how smart their teachers are about child nature. Every school teacher is a psychologist or else they'll quit. 
And Barbara Kaufman knew what to do with the cave boys. She would bend over and she would put her hands on each side of one child's face and speak to him so that his eyes couldn't turn, so that his mouth couldn't move very well, so that his body had to be still. And she had that boy's full attention by her gracious grip. And then she would do it to the other. She was like a horse whisperer, except she was a boy whisperer, I guess. You know, the gaze of God calms us. It takes our gaze off the, what does the hymn say? The things of earth which grow strangely dim in the light of His glorious grace. And so, even though now we see through a dark glass darkly, we shall see face to face, but even now we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, and we are being transformed. What we are, what we cover with masks and veils, is being transformed, changed, sanctified, regenerated, renewed, day by day, by God's grace. So, we long for the look. We look at ourselves differently. The last thing I'd like us to contemplate is that we are to look at others. Not see others, but look. Seeing is just a perceptive action, but looking is to extend into another's presence. Here's a mouthful for you. All ethics is grounded in divine ontology. Translation. If you want to know what to do, look to God's nature. If you want to know what love is, look to God's nature. Ethics is doing life consistent with who God is. So the way in which God looks upon us is the not just the provision of God's grace, but it's the pattern for us looking upon others. We are to look upon others the way God looks upon us. That's what this means. John, I wish Jesse were here, he'd know this poem. John Gillespie McGee's poem, High Flight, says that he slipped the surly bonds of earth and touched the face of God. But that's not how we touch the face of God, the Bible tells us. We touch the face of God by looking upon the image of God in His image bearers. In Matthew 25, Jesus told a parable about a king who commended all of his subjects for having fed him, given him drink, invited him in when he was a stranger, clothed him, visited him in prison and when he was sick. And they said, when did we do this? And you all know the answer, right? When you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. I think that's the key of Psalm 115. The nations say, where is your God? The nations say, Israel, you're atheists. You don't have a God. Well, they didn't have a God because God not only forbade the making of images of himself, but he told Israel that every human being was an image bearer of his. And James understands this when James says in chapter 3, with our mouth we bless God, but we what? We curse man who is made in his image. 
people who do the right things in worshiping God but do nothing and the wrong things in terms of loving one another are called hypocrites. Knowing how God looks at us should transform the way we look at other people. It means looking at others differently. You know, lust is just an example of all improper looking at others. When we look at others in order to compare ourselves favorably or when to conclude certain things ethically about others being in inferior to us, or not deserving of God's favor, or not deserving of our kindness. Bigotry is a failure to look upon others the way God looks upon us. We look at others differently when we realize that God has looked upon us. But we not only look at others differently, we look at different others. It's so easy in our valley of blessedness, in our dale of God's favor where life is good. And even in the hardest of times, it's actually not that bad. And to think that others who don't experience those blessings of creation must somehow be spiritually or morally inferior. You see, but doesn't the Bible say such as were you? There but for the grace of God go I, we say. I don't need to belabor this in a place like Christ the King, but you know this really has implications for how we look upon older people. We must look as God looks. What does it mean to turn a blind eye? It means to look away from someone in need. About uh, six weeks ago, my father-in-law, 89 years old, suffered a very severe stroke. It took about nine days for his life to finally pass. And the family kept watch while he was in critical care. There was no prospect, humanly speaking, of recovery. He was an 89-year-old German farmer. Now, that translates into about three pages. <laughs> you know, that translates into about three pages of description. The week before, he had been on his backhoe shoring up the dam at the pond at his farm. He hadn't farmed the land for about the last 10 years, but he never rested a minute where he could be doing something. And it was such a sudden transformation. And... During part of the time where I was keeping watch, I realized I wasn't looking at his face. His hands were curled and his mouth was agape, his eyes closed, and he looked so different than the last time I'd seen him. But you know what I realized? I was looking away from his face out of embarrassment for him. He would have not liked to be seen this way. But I also realized that he still held all the dignity that was his before the stroke. And so, by God's grace, I turned my eyes toward him. You know, people say we don't know when people are non-responsive what they're hearing. We also probably don't know what they're seeing. 
And I would not have wanted him to see me staring below his face. I would want to have him see me looking in his face. Because the scriptures tell us that every human being, from the first of their conception to the last breath that they draw, is an image bearer of the Creator. So as we go about in the world and we look at people, we meet people, especially when we're sheltered from one another in these metal cages that they would call cars, we're seeing image bearers of God. And for us upon whom God's face has shined in favor, merit by their very nature, even if not their actions, merit by their very nature to be looked upon as God looks upon them. So, this is what it means to be looked upon by God in this blessing that his servant Aaron was to pronounce over the people of God. It is the blessing now through Christ's ministers which is pronounced at the end of worship service. And it is not therefore a prayer, but rather it is speaking God's word upon his people so that it might bring about what it promises. And therefore, we look at ourselves differently and look at others differently. A similar story about my father-in-law. I remember when I was first ordained at this little church I mentioned earlier, my pastor gave me a list of people I needed to go visit. And I was a young uh, so-called scholar, uh, just fresh out of seminary, And I wanted to be studying for my sermons and being out and about, having lunches with businessmen, all the things I like to do. And so I was a little slow on this list, and he was patient but also firm. And so I called. The first person on my list was Mrs. Finley. Mrs. Finley had had a cancer in her sinuses and facial area, and therefore... uh, The prognosis was not good for her, but she was left with an open place in the very front of her face. And, you know, young people especially don't like to look at sick, older people. It's true. It creeps out a lot of young people to go to a nursing home. My mother forced my brothers and me, I think I've mentioned this before, but my parents would let my 16-year-old brother drive us to church if we would swing by the nursing home on the way home and drop church bulletins off of the church members. And we would do that, and we would get home, and mom say, did you drop off the bulletins? And we said, yes. And did you talk to so-and-so? Well, no, she was asleep. <laughs> we don't know if she was asleep or not. We were so quiet dropping that, you know. Uh, and she said, you wake her up next time. That was uh, what my mom said. But I went to see Mrs. Finley, and she was prepared for my visit. And uh, even though it was difficult for her to talk because of her open sinuses, she was wearing her prosthesis, and, and she was an inspiring example of fervent, steadfast faith amidst really a difficult time of life for her. And uh, I did my best to look her in the eye. Those little Irish green eyes, really bright, Well, the next time I dropped by, I don't know if I didn't give her enough notice or whether she just did me the grace of not wearing her prosthesis. And 
by God's grace again, rather than it being difficult, it was almost like a beatitude, a beatific vision to see someone who had experienced a lifetime of God's favor and was ready and so able to testify to that. God had shined his face on her and she would not hide her face from me. So the psalmist says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to choir in his temple. And as David said, Lord, you said, seek my face, and Lord, your face I will seek. Not only in the gaze of God upon us, but in those who are created in God's image. Let's pray. Lord, help us to humanize one another, to humanize our neighbor in the same way, with the same grace with which you have made us human by showing your favor to us in the gaze of your Son, who said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Lord, we have beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. And we pray, having beheld the glory of God in the face of Christ, we may shine the glory of Christ into our neighborhoods, our family lives, and most of all, Lord, that you would cause us above all things to desire your glorious gaze in and through your Son. For we pray in his name. Amen.